Well, it has been um, it has been a crazy week in many ways. Um, last Sunday after service, my wife and I headed down to the U.S. to visit with family. Our immigration stuff finally came through, which meant that we could leave the country and get back into Canada. So we could always leave the country, but we couldn't necessarily get back. And this is home for us, and so we want to be able to get back. All right, we want to be able to come back to our home. And so we were able to go down there this past week, and her father flew in from Colorado, had a great time hanging out with family and friends and just reconnecting with so many people. Um, It wasn't the most restful week, uh, but it was a good week for our souls to connect with a lot of people. But it was good to um, drive into our home here last night about 9 o'clock and just feel like, Lord, this is our home. This is where you have us. This is our people. To come in here this morning... And to uh, worship with you guys, Um, we're just so excited to be a part of what the Lord is doing. But you know, being in the U.S. in this past week, it was a very um, challenging week, a very difficult week because of the shooting that happened there in Texas and the tragedy there. And um, you know, I think we as Canadians, if I could say this, Um, need to remember to lift up our American brothers and sisters in prayer and support and just being present, not to be swept up into all the political rhetoric that happens around these type of things. We know that there are things that need to be done, but I want to say this um, as one who lived there for 21 years. um, There's a lot of nuance to that country. And what gets displayed in the media is usually the polarized sides. One side yelling this, one side saying this. But I can say that the majority of the people I know are not swept up into the polarizations of these sides. And they just want some change to happen. They want people to sit down at the table and be willing to talk and communicate and compromise and try to get a plan moving forward. And so I think it's important as Canadians that we don't get swept up into joining the polarized side. But number one, we just try to be present with our brothers and sisters that are mourning and grieving, uh, that we pray for them. Uh, We pray for wisdom. We pray for leadership to make some good resolution and change. Um, But there's nothing worse than hearing all the critique from the outside neighbors coming in on everything they're doing wrong. And so I want to spend a moment, because I know I have a lot of pastor friends in the U.S. this morning that are standing in their pulpits, and there's a hostile environment that they are facing, and they want, their congregations want everyone, their leaders, to make a statement about this or that, and no matter what they say, no one's, not everyone's going to be happy. It's a very challenging time to be a pastor. And so I want to pray right now, if you would uh, allow me to, before we get into the message. Are you okay with that? All right, so let's pray. So Father, we... We thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for your goodness and mercy. We thank you for the blessing that we have to come and gather together with family and to worship your son, Jesus. And Lord, as all of our hearts grieve so deeply with the tragedy that happened this past week there in Texas, Lord, I pray that somehow, some way, that you would intervene and that what the enemy intends for evil and destruction somehow, some way, you would turn for your good. That in this season of tragic things happening all around us, that you, through your spirit, would draw people closer to you. 
Lord, I pray for all those families that are there mourning the loss of their children, of their loved ones. And as that whole community is completely shaken right now, Holy Spirit, come. Come and do what only you can do in the hearts and lives of your people. Help us to remember to pray for our American brothers and sisters, not just to critique and lash out in frustration, but help us to pray, help us to be reminded to lift them up to you. And Lord, we pray for the leaders of America right now. Lord, I pray for wisdom. I pray for discernment. I pray for humility, that you would help them to make wise decisions moving forward to come to some type of resolve to just start something, just to start to do something towards making America a safer country. We know there's many layers to this issue, but Father, we pray for wisdom for those leaders, that they would have the resolve to put things in place that need to be put into place. Lord, I pray for the pastors of America right now. I pray for many of my friends standing in their pulpits right now, trying to navigate this time, trying to lead their congregations well, trying to remain true to the faithfulness of the word of God while not getting swept up in all the cultural moments. Help them to have courage. Help them to be under the anointing of your spirit this morning. Help them to speak words of life. Help them to speak words of moving forward in the midst of tragedy. And I pray that you would guard them that you would protect them, guard their minds, guard their emotions. This has been a crazy week for many of them. And I know so many of them are already tired, already ready to quit. And Lord, I just pray for strength. I, just, I pray for resolve in their hearts, that the pastors of America would rise up and be the people that you have called them to be and lead well in this time. And it's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, let's get into the sermon here this morning. I'll try to make it through this. So, oh, wow. Well, if you're, you're new here to GT, my name's Tim. I'm usually not a crying, bumbling mess, but my heart is tender here today, and um, I believe the Lord has incredible things for us. This morning, I'm excited because we are starting a new series in the book of James, uh, a very interesting book, a very powerful book, um, and we're titling this series um, Active Faith. We did a series a few weeks ago in the book of Daniel where we were looking at resilient faith. And over the next five weeks, I'm really excited because we're going to talk about this idea of active faith. Now, before we get to the text here this morning, I want to start off with this idea. Whenever we hear someone say something that we doubt their genuineness, that we doubt their authenticity, their sincerity in a statement, we tend to say things like, prove it. Talk is cheap. Show me the money. If you're in the basketball world and we're playing pickup basketball and there's a disagreement over who touched the ball last before it went out of bounds, we tend to say shoot for it, prove it, and we'll see who gets the ball. Um, I'll believe it when I see it. The proof is in the pudding. If you're from the South, it's the proof is in the pudding. All right? Show me the evidence. Now, as we start off this series, I believe this is essentially what the entirety of the book of James is all about. You see, James writes this epistle to a group of people who say they follow Jesus and his ways, but he's heard some conflicting reports about their behavior and lifestyle. 
And James in this book, and I believe we're going to see this over the next five weeks, James, he calls for these group of believers to essentially put their money where their mouth is and start acting like they are who they profess themselves to be. You see, the book of James is really about the maturity of the believer. And the overriding motif or the overriding call that James gives in this epistle is simply this. If you're a Christian, it's time to grow up. It's time to properly be who God has called you to be. Now, the theme verse in these five chapters that we're going to look at, I believe, is found in James chapter 2, verse 17. And it says this, so also faith by itself, if it, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Simply put, faith looks like something. Now, the genre of this book, I believe, is very much like the genre of the book of Proverbs. How many people love the book of Proverbs? It's a a book that's written with all kinds of wisdom, insight. In fact, many scholars refer to the book of James as the Proverbs of the New Testament. And it's not as concerned with theology or doctrine, what we would call orthodoxy, as it is with the practical application of theology and doctrine, what we call orthopraxy. The book of James is short, and it has many jumpy statements. It's kind of like just popcorn things, and it jumps all over the place, and it goes from one thought to the very next. So when we read it, the flow isn't always easy to follow. But when we learn to read it properly, I believe the book of James is absolutely power-packed. Now, there have been much debate over the centuries about whether what the apostle James writes contradicts what the Apostle Paul writes. The Apostle Paul wrote the majority of the New Testament scriptures. And so in much of Paul's writings, the major focus is on this idea that's called justification by faith. And what that means is that every single one of us, we are saved by faith and not by works. And everyone said... Amen. There is nothing we can do to earn God's salvation. That is the good news of the gospel. We're not saved by doing good, but we're saved by what Jesus ultimately has done. And so with that understanding, many have wrestled with whether James is teaching something contrary to that Christian belief. In fact, the great Protestant reformer, Martin Luther, he actually referred to the book of James as an epistle of straw. In fact, Martin Luther actually wanted the book of James removed from the canonization of Scripture. Later on, he would recount that and say, wait a second, I see that James doesn't necessarily contradict Paul, but he actually compliments Paul. And so we must see that the key in James is that when he writes, he's writing to this group of believers going through intense persecution, and he's not talking about them earning their salvation through works, but rather he talks about the works being an evidence of their salvation. Some have said it like this, that Paul, in his epistles, he speaks about the root of our salvation, but James, in his epistles, he speaks about the fruit of our salvation. So that's a little preface leading us into this series, and we're going to break it down strategically over the next five weeks. Now, I want us to stand for the reading of God's Word. And guys, I think you have the wrong slides up there, by the way. 
So Steve, um, Isaiah, if you're around somewhere in the building, and I love awkward transitions, uh, if you wouldn't mind trying to get the right slides up there, that would be great. So here we go, James chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. It says, James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes of the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without approach. And it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This is the word of the Lord. We may be seated. Now, in these first eight verses, what we see is that James is essentially the writer of this book. Now, this James is not the James that was one of the original 12, but it's believed by most historians and scholars that this is the half-brother of Jesus who also became one of the main leaders in the church at Jerusalem. It's interesting to note that this James, I believe, is one of the greatest witnesses or the professions of Jesus actually being who he said he was because at one time, James, the half-brother of Jesus, did not believe Jesus really was who he said he was. It's interesting that our, our siblings sometimes are always the most cynical of us, aren't they? Anybody have siblings in the house here today? How many of you kids, you have brothers and sisters, and, and when you say something, they're always questioning what you say. They're always doubting what you say, and sometimes it gets frustrating, doesn't it? Well, James was like that with Jesus. In fact, the Gospels reveal that, that the, the siblings of Jesus actually at times doubted that Jesus was, in fact, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Son of God. They're like, we grew up with Jesus. We, we know who he is. We, we know the, the way he is, and he's pretty special. I'm not so sure he's ever sinned. At least mom and dad have never gotten mad at him before, but he's still Jesus from Nazareth, right? And so after the resurrection, this James, who at one point doubted Jesus, now actually believes that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ, the anointed one, the resurrected one. Now, James says that he writes this epistle to the diaspora, which literally means the scattering, and it spoke of the scattering of both Christian Jews and also some Gentiles because of the great persecution that was happening at the hands of the Roman Empire. We actually read about that in Acts chapter 11. That great persecution began to rise up in the church, and all of a sudden, because of that great persecution, the people that were in Jerusalem actually scattered out to the other areas. Now James here, in these first eight verses, I believe he says one of the most ludicrous things in the New Testament scriptures. And he starts off his epistles with this ludicrous statement. He essentially says this, count it all joy when you go through really bad things. That is not the way I would start off an epistle. 
right? That's hopefully not what we would start off a message with. Count it all joy when life is difficult and hard and you're going through adversity and you're facing struggle in your life. How many people love going through trials? How many people love being challenged? How many people love facing hardship or being persecuted? No, none of us do. But I want you to see this, that when James says to count it all joy, he isn't speaking of some type of fake superficial thing here. He's not talking about we're just skipping through joy in life. Oh, life really is bad today and everything is wrong, but I'm just happy. He's not talking about the Mr. Rogers type of persona there. He's saying something very deep in this moment. Because he goes on and he begins to say that when you face hard times when you go through some stuff and every one of us know that that in life we will go through stuff we will go through challenges what James says that when you do that it actually begins to produce steadfastness in your life you see this word steadfast it speaks of being steady being strong being immovable it speaks of being patient. It speaks of being dependent. You see, it is impossible to grow in steadfastness. And I want you to hear my words on this. It's impossible to grow in steadfastness without being tested. It is impossible to grow in patience without your patience being Tested. Anybody ever prayed to the Lord that you would become a more patient person? Every parent in here, Lord, help me be more patient with my children. And it's almost like the moment you pray that, you hear something break in the other room. I didn't mean right now, Lord. I'm, I'm saying over time, would you help me be more patient with my children? Whenever we pray for things, it's interesting how God allows us to go through things so that we might be tested in those things, so that we might grow in strength. You see, it is impossible to gain strength in any area of life without resistance. And so the reason James says we can have joy in the midst of trials is because God promises not to waste our trials. It's not this superficial thing like, oh, I just love being miserable. And you have the cheerleader face on. I've used that analogy before, coaching basketball for 15 years. And the cheerleaders, I love them. And at times I loathe them because we'd be down by 40. And they're always like, we can do it. Yes, we can. No, we can't do it. It's the fourth quarter. We're going to lose this game, right? I'm a realist in that sense. But, but what James talks about is not that superficial, shallow type of faith. He says, no, when we go through things, when we go through stuff, when we're tested, God promises that he will not waste our trials. You see, this is why James encourages these believers to ask for wisdom. The encouragement is that God won't waste our current challenges if we just ask. That he will help us, lead us, guide us, and refine us. And though he does not cause trials to come into our life, in his sovereignty, he will use trials if we allow him 
I want to say that again. God doesn't cause trials to come into your life. Trials exist because of free will and mankind's decisions. God doesn't put punishment on his kids to teach them. He doesn't bring sickness in their life to teach them. He doesn't cause tragedy to happen in Texas to somehow use it for his glory. No, those things happen because of free will in a world where mankind continually chooses their way above God's way. And God says, that's not my heart, that's not my purpose, but watch this. I can use this for my glory. I can use this for my purposes. Let's read on, verses 12 through 18. James goes on and says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And so in the first section there, James, he talks about the testing of trials. And then in this next portion, he begins to break down this idea of the testing of temptation. And I believe that James makes clear that temptation does not come from God. Amen? Temptation does not come from God. God is not yin and yang. He is not both good and evil. That's Eastern ideology of religion and deism. God is only good. God is only perfect. God is only just. And so James, he makes this clear that that temptation does not come from God, but rather temptation or falling into temptation comes from us, from our own evil desires. And at the root of it, temptation comes from us, hear me on this, doubting the goodness of God. Falling into temptation comes from us doubting the goodness of God. Temptation comes from us thinking that the counterfeit of something is so much more enticing and better than the authentic. The great rapper Kendrick Lamar said this, temptation is just a feeling that you're the most independent person on planet Earth, that you know everything. You see, I want you to understand this truth. The devil, who is the author of evil, cannot create anything. Did you know that? The devil has never created anything in his life. He can only distort and pervert. And so temptation is when we fall for the perverted or distorted form of something good 
that God created or gave us as a gift. This is why James says every good and perfect gift comes from God. Thomas Merton said the biggest human temptation is to settle for too little. You see, every time we fall for temptation, we are settling for too little. Every time we fall for temptation, it, it's something that's been distorted or perverted, and it's a counterfeit of the authentic. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. He desires to give us the purest form of every good gift. But what we often do is we settle for the counterfeit rather than pursue the authentic. Every temptation is a perversion or a distortion of the goodness of God. And so I believe that God promises to bless us if we will just pursue. He will bless us with a pure and authentic gift. That's his promise for us. So many times in discipling young men and young students and they're wrestling with sin and habitual sin and they're falling into temptation over and over again. I don't chastise them. I don't beat them up because of falling into it. I always point there's something better God has for you if you will be patient and wait, wait and pursue. Because you think the temptation you fell into is something that's going to bring satisfaction. But you know over and over again, it's just a brief moment of joy and delight that leads to a lifetime of misery and heartache and pain. But God has his best for you. Beloved, God has his best for you. He has the pure and authentic realm of what he wants to bless you with. So James makes it clear, temptation doesn't come from God. It's rooted in the devil, but it's distortion of the good, of the pure, of the authentic. Now, I have children present here, so I want to be careful on how I say this. But I, in my premarital counseling, I always say this. I'm enjoying life better 18 years into marriage than I ever did in my first couple of years. Why? Because we're on a journey, my wife and I, of discovering the pure and authentic goodness of God, of the gift that he gave. And if I settle for the counterfeit, I'll never get to experience the joy and the, the delight of the pure and the authentic. And I believe that works in every which way. Now, I believe that the best way to grow in resisting temptation, and this is a very practical thing, if you remember nothing else, remember this, is we have to rediscover the art of saying no. Everyone say it, no. I know we're living in a day and age where that word is not popular. I remember my wife and I working with a young couple and they said, we don't use the word no in our home. Really? We provide better options in this progressive parenting movement. Let me know how that works out. That becomes problematic because your kids grow older and then they don't know what no means and they don't know boundaries. And if we're honest, in the consumeristic West that we live in, we only know how to say yes really well. I'm hungry, yes, feed me, quick, now, food in my mouth. I want something, I go and I buy and I spend and I consume. We want things not just 
uh, consumeristic things, but we want things in a quick, efficient way. We don't like waiting for anything. We are always giving in all the time. I'm bored, or we don't know how to stand in line anymore and have a conversation with people, right? You go to wait somewhere, and what do you do? What's a natural reaction for most of us? And we just scroll and scroll and scroll over and over again. We consume. All we do is say yes to our flesh all the time. And so when the enemy comes in with a distortion or a perversion, we don't know how to say no. And it's just we're weak. And we just, yes, of course I'll give in to that moment. I want to encourage you in a very practical way. Learn to say no to some things this week. Not necessarily bad things, just some simple things. When you're hungry, don't eat right away. Because the truth is, you probably ate like 20 minutes ago, <laughs> and you're just bored. Maybe drink a cup of water. When you're bored with your wardrobe, don't go buy a new outfit. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. You have all kinds of clothes sitting in your closet. My wife's side is massive and huge. My side is ma- And I love it when I hear my wife say, I have nothing to wear. Or my kids say, I have nothing to wear. I'm like... You have all kinds of things to wear. Dad, I need a new outfit. Dad, I need new pants. You have 20 different pairs of pants. If I buy you something, you better get rid of something, right? And we just give in and give in and give in all the time. I dare you to be radical this week. Go to the store, go to the mall. Find an item that looks great. Try it on. Fits perfectly. It's even on sale. It makes perfect sense for you to buy that. Come out of the dressing room and say it fits perfectly, the price is right, but no thank you. And walk out and see what happens, right? <laughs> Just, I dare you, try that, right? Just try practicing the art of saying no to simple things. And try not going to your phone when you're bored. Try when you're in line being that awkward, weird person and asking someone about their day and engaging in conversation. I believe the greatest way we fight temptation or we learn to learn to fight temptation is by learning the art of saying no. So when the enemy comes with his distortion and his perversion, we can respond, hey enemy, I've been saying no all week and it's pretty good. So guess what, take a hike, I want nothing of it because I only want the pure and authentic realm that God has for me. Let's read on, verses 19 through 27. James goes on, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, type post, I add in there, Tim Woodcock translation. Slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue or his fingers or her fingers, but deceives their heart, this person's religion 
is worthless. Because religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now this phrase that James uses here, put away, in the original language, it presents the imagery of removing or taking off clothes, which became common language in the Christian community, to signify putting off the old garments you used to wear before Christ, when you were a pre-Christian, your pre-Christian lifestyle, and then putting on the new garments that you now wear as you are in Christ, following the way of Jesus. So James, he encourages them, that that type of behavior that you're functioning in, that's not the way of the kingdom. Throw that off. Put aside those garments and put on this new garment. Once again, faith has to look like something. And James, he finishes up this section by essentially saying, true religion is to be present with those who are weak, those who are suffering, and those who are being exploited. The analogy in his day was the widows and the orphans. And then it doesn't stop there. And he goes on and says, to resist falling into the ways, the systems, the philosophies, the falsehoods, and the ideologies of the world. I want you to catch this. James is writing to a group of believers that have scattered, they've run for their lives. And essentially in the diaspora, what's happened is they've gone to other areas and they're kind of laying low in hiding. They're fearful for their lives. They, they profess that they follow Jesus and because of this profession, their lives are at risk. And so I imagine, and many scholars would agree with this, that the diaspora that have scattered are people that say, yeah, we follow Jesus, but we don't make any public knowledge or proclamation about it. We just want to fly under the radar. We just want to lay low. And so they're in a time of just survival, of just kind of bunkering down, wondering, wondering when will this persecution end, and if it gets a little easier to profess Christianity, then maybe we'll come out and be more public with our, our Christianity. We're afraid for our lives, so we're just going to fly under the radar and lay low. And James comes with a, we're not going to do missions, we're not going to help people, we're just going to say we believe in Jesus and we're going to hang out in our home and that's it. And James goes ham on these believers. He gets strong with them and he says that type of faith, that type of religion is useless. Yes, your lives may be in danger. Yes, you may be ridiculed for your faith. Yes, you are persecuted and it may get bad. But what James says is, now is not the time to hide. Now is not the time to lay low. Now is the time to rise up and be the hands and feet of Jesus to a world that desperately needs to know him. And you do this by being present with those that are suffering and by not wavering in your belief and your conviction. 
He talks about doctrine, and he talks about practice in these final few sentences. You say you believe, show it. Prove it. Show me the money. Shoot for it. Give me the the evidence that you believe. Because laying low and just saying you're a Christian and never having it affect any exterior realm of your life or the people around you is not true religion. You see, the way of the world is divisive politics and tribalism and taking sides. The way of the kingdom of Jesus is a unified, embodied presence seeking justice. I want to say this. God has always cared about justice. And not just from the realm of what some people call a social gospel, but no, the entirety of Scripture speaks to if you are a follower of God, if you are a follower of Jesus, you better be one pursuing justice. We see it in the Old Testament. Isaiah, he gives a prophetic rebuke in Isaiah chapter 1. He says, Speak on behalf of the Lord. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifice, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek Justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. It's one of the reasons Israel was sent into exile because they didn't seek justice. Jesus in Matthew 23 goes into the temple and he has a showdown with the Pharisees and he gives all these woes to the self-righteous elitists of his day. And he says it in verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. See, I believe the scriptures make it clear that justice should matter to those who profess Christ, not because of some hot topic political and cultural moment, but because it matters to God, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament scriptures. And so as the body of Christ, as followers of the way of Jesus, we pursue justice not because of the political climate, That's why even as a pastor, I never want to speak to something. My friends this morning, the pressure coming from these political angles, and I'm trying to encourage them, preach the word of God. Speak to those things as the scripture leads you. Speak to those things that the Holy Spirit leads you. Don't do it because of the climate of the moment. Because we are called to be a different people, a different way, a different being. And we are called to care for justice, not because of a political ideology. We're called to care for justice because God cares for justice. And so James, he's trying to write to these people that have been persecuted, but they're in hiding. And they're just stagnant in their faith. And he essentially says, now is not the time for you to be silent and stagnant in your faith. Now is the time to rise up and be who God has called you to be. And be present with those that are suffering, even though you also may suffer. And then I love it, he says, and do not waver in your conviction and your belief. Don't succumb to the falsehoods of the day. Hold true to the eternal word of God. 
hold true to what the Bible and the teachings have taught for centuries. Be a people that do both. And so the tension that James leaves us with here in the end of chapter 1 is, can we say we have faith in Christ and be a people who are committed to grace and truth? Can we say that we have faith in Christ and be a people that have right doctrine and right practice? Can we as followers of the way of Jesus be the most compassionate, kind-hearted, merciful, justice-seeking people and yet hold resolute to the conviction of Scripture and not be swept into so many of the falsehoods circulating in our day. That will be the challenge for the church in Canada moving forward. Can we hold the tension of both? Because in a lot of places they contend for truth and the absolute word of the, the word of God and then the most, uh, they're the most um, hard-hearted, angry, resentful, judgmental people. But we contend for truth. We stand for truth. But you're you're a bad person. I was going to say another word, but you're a bad person. You, your heart is hard. You're mean. You're calloused. And then on this other side, which we have a lot of in Canada today, we want to contend for justice and stand with the oppressed and be present, present with those that are needy. But then we want to waver on conviction and biblical truth. And I would say neither is a full representation of the gospel of Jesus. Both of them miss an important part. We can't just stand for the, the needy and be present with them and not hold to resolute truth. And we can't just hold to resolute truth and conviction and have no care for the less fortunate and the poor. We have to be able to hold both moving forward. And I know when it comes to contending for truth, some people say, but we're living in hard times. We're living in difficult times. Bills are being passed. Things are being said. There's a hostile environment. I don't want to be labeled and categorized. The word from James this morning, I believe, to us is don't cower. Don't hide. Don't bunker down. Rise up. Be the people of God. Be the most compassionate, loving people in Canada today. And yet, when it comes to conviction, yeah, I do believe in that. Yeah, we do hold to that. We're for you, not against you, but we hold to this truth of God's word. But we hope that in the way we live and the way we act, we will be the most merciful and compassionate people while holding to that. This is what James presents to us. I want us to stand here this morning. Worship team, if you guys would come out. And prayer team, if you wouldn't mind coming up as we close here today. There's several things we're gonna do in this moment and throughout this series to kind of bring closure to the services. First thing we're gonna do is there's a song that I've asked the worship team to sing that we're gonna sing every single Sunday for the next five weeks. It's called God of Justice. Anybody ever heard this song before? It's a powerful song and there's a part, there's a tag at the end where it says, fill us up and send us out. We don't want the Holy Spirit to come and fill us up so that we can say we had good meetings. Hello? We don't want to have his presence come and have this encounter and experience so that we can say we went to church today and it was good. No, we want to be empowered by the Holy Spirit so that we might be sent out 
on mission. Walking in the way of Jesus. Walking in grace and truth. That our profession matches our action or our action matches our profession. That if we say we're a people of Jesus and follow his ways, we model it. We live it well. We model it in our homes. We model it in our neighborhoods. We model it in our workplaces. Hello, parents. I believe one of the greatest ways we can do this right now is by modeling the way of Jesus to our children. Our children need to see moms and dads so full of the Holy Spirit, so full of love for Jesus, walking in grace and truth more than ever, I believe. And so we do that right here and right now, but then we take it and we go out wherever we go and we hold this tension. Now when we're done singing this song this morning, if you're here and you want prayer for anything, maybe you're going through a trial and you need some people just to pray with you that you would help, that you would respond to God by simply saying, Lord, help me to learn in this moment. Help me not to allow this trial to be wasted because you don't desire to waste it. Or maybe you're here this morning and you keep falling into temptation over and over and over again because you keep pursuing the counterfeit more than the pure and authentic. Then when we're done singing, these people would love to have a moment to pray with you. But let's sing this out together here today. And let's join in one voice. Savior to all came to rescue the weak and the poor chose to serve and not be served jesus you have called us freely we receive now freely Fill us up, 
send us out. Fill us up, send us out, Lord. Fill us up, send us out. Fill us up, send us out. Fill us up, send us out, Lord. here this morning, you leave sent on mission. The presence of the Lord is here in our midst, but it's not so that we can just feel good about church services, but it's that we might be empowered to go out in proclamation as well as demonstration, to hold resolute to conviction, but also to model the ethics of the kingdom and the way of Jesus. So go in the power and strength of his might. Walk in his ways. Refuse to be swept up into the ideologies and the systems and the politics of the day. Be a different way. Be a different person. Walk in the way of Jesus. And may you be the hands and feet wherever you go of his kingdom. Bless you. If you want prayer for anything, we would love to pray with you. Have an incredible afternoon. Thank you so much.